Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast where a Brit and a Swede describe Swedish history piece by piece. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Firstly, we'd like to say how great it is to be back to the podcast and back to the chronological narrative. We've had two weeks off from the podcast for the first time since we accidentally forgot to release an episode all the way back with episode three. So we've had a really good run. It has been a good run, but we've been ridiculously busy recently. Two of our best friends getting married in Wales and Skorna, work trips, buying a flat, moving into a flat. It's been a bit crazy. But we did manage to release a special episode about our trip to Skorna and some of the cool historical things we saw there a few weeks ago before the break. Maybe in that two-week break between releases, you've had time to catch up on some of the newer episodes. When we posted about it, we got quite a few replies on social media from people who were saying, yes, thanks for the break, I'll just be catching up in time, or we'll be caught up by the time this gets released. So we hope you're one of those people if you did need that little bit of a break. And shout out to my friend Marat, who is also slowly catching up and every day uses a translated version of a Swedish phrase in one of our group chats with some friends from university who uh, get a bit confused at what he's saying. (laughs) That's great. I love how he's incorporating it into the chat. I hope some of our other listeners are also doing that and confusing their friends. And finally, before we jump into the latest Swedish phrase, we wanted to give a very special shout out to listener Dan, his wife Jessica and their four daughters who were in Stockholm on holiday from the Midwest in the US a few weeks ago. We went for a meal with them and it was so great to see them and talk about all things Swedish history and just generally have a nice time together. So Dan and the family, if you're listening, hope you had a safe trip back to America. And thanks again for taking the time to see us. Yeah, that was really such great fun. Uh, Hello and thank you again. But now on to our Swedish phrase of the week. And this time we have Farn och Hans Muster. Uh, Would you like to explain that one, Orsa? Yes, well, first of all, we should say that this week's phrase includes a swear word. Well, sort of. Not a very bad one, because the phrase fan och hans muster literally translates to the devil and his aunt. And it means everybody, or all included, but in a slightly negative sense. So you could say, for example... I've liked Star Wars since it was a relatively niche subculture, but since Disney bought it, Fan och hans muster claim to be Star Wars fans. And so Fan och hans muster means broadly everybody, the whole world. It's a phrase used as a generalization and mainly in a negative way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've also heard the phrase used, but with slightly different wording. So you could use the word for grandmother or old mother at the end of it. So it's a bit like the English phrase, every man and his dog. Yeah, there are, like you said, different versions of the saying in Swedish. uh, All of them, including the devil and some of his relatives, so to speak. And they all mean the same thing. 
Well, that's good to know. All these different uh, family members of the devil getting an appearance in the Swedish phrase of the week. But now back to the history and the timeline. And before our special episode about Skirna, we had a semi-chronological episode about the life of soon-to-be saint Birgitta. She loved getting involved in Swedish politics, both whilst in the country as the lady-in-waiting to Queen Blanche, and then later through some pretty vitriolic letters written from Rome where she went to live later in life. And before that, we heard all about the Battle of Visby from Thomas Neyman, historian and curator at the Swedish History Museum here in Stockholm. And it's in the first few days after that battle that we pick up the narrative today. Indeed, Thomas mentioned that huge painting that shows off the situation when King Valdemar accepted tribute from the people of Visby. So this happened a few days after the battle. We heard from Thomas how the Gotlanders were made to come and take care of the dead bodies. Apparently, according to some sources, the Danes even forced the nuns of a nearby abbey out on the battlefield to also help with the dead bodies, who the Danes had decided were going to be buried in mass graves on site. King Valdemar and his son, Prince Christopher, were allowed entry into Visby to meet the town council. Now remember, the people of Visby didn't get involved in the battle, it was the people from outside the town walls that were fighting the Danes, and they were from the countryside, and they were a different group of people, so to say. Yeah, so remember how back in the late 1280s there was even a civil war on Gotland between the two groups of people. Magnus III had managed to broker a peace agreement back then, but there was clearly still a bit of hard feelings by the time we get up to the Battle of Visby. Something we haven't had time to mention up until now was how this difference between the farmers of Gotland and the people of Visby was actually manifested in physical things, and it was in a bit of a building frenzy. Absolutely. There's a great article called Medieval Gotland, Churches, Chronologies and Crusades by Jess Wienber, who talks about how the town started to give priority to building its walls and towers, but the people on the countryside started building more and more churches. Over the past decades, Fewer ships were stopping off at Gotland on their way around the Baltic Sea, and the people had to get used to less money coming in. But the money that did come in was, to a large extent, spent on these churches, which littered the Gotlandic countryside. She suggests that this might have even affected the result of the battle with this quote. The countryside squandered its resources on its churches. It is the suggestion here that it was the church building and their adornment which finally bankrupted the trading farmers. If the farmers on Gotland had not used so much money on large chancels, high towers, enormous portals, windows, sculptures and paintings, they would have stood a much better chance in competition with Visby and the German merchants. They should have spent more of their surplus on an infrastructure with harbours and larger ships. Considering their fatal defeat in 1361 against the Danes, they should have also invested much more in modern weapons and armour. And now for my favourite part of the quote, The chancel in Schellunge, where the number of farms served by the church was only 12. This is megalomania. 
Maybe it was logical within a medieval universe with a deeply religious mentality, but it is insanity if you want to be competitive in an early capitalist market around the Baltic Sea. So yeah, there we have it. The Gotlandic peasants perhaps lost the battle partly because they spent far too much money on churches and not enough on weapons. Thomas did say in the battle episode that it was clear that the Danes were better equipped, but they were also a much more professional force anyway, so perhaps it didn't matter that much about the churches in the end. Either way, the people of Visby decided not to fight, and when Valdemar enters the city after the battle, he presents a letter of privilege to the council that states that Visby will retain its rights and privileges. The council of Visby were pretty pleased with what the Danes had to offer. They would get to keep everything as they had it, plus get the rights afforded to Danish towns. Even better, perhaps wisely, King Valdemar does not, perhaps purposely, call himself King of Gotland. Yeah, that seems like a wise decision. It was seen as a given that the Danes would loot Visby and Gotland, as was customary at the time. However, since Visby had not acted to stop the Danish invasion, they thought they could maybe get out of the looting on that technicality. We don't really know how the Danes responded to that, but there would have probably been some looting. The sides did sign and agree on the letter, though. For a long time, it was believed that after defeating the Gotlanders, Valdemar issued this fire tax where he said, if you don't hand over the keys to the city, the town will be set on fire. But the keys were handed over, and so that didn't happen, but there was a little bit of looting that went on. Most historians today agree that Valdemar never fire-taxed or threatened to burn down Visby, but it was long held as a historical fact. There's that painting we mentioned called Valdemar's Fire Tax, or King Valdemar Fire Taxing Visby, which was even included in my middle school history book. I remember it very vividly. The decision of the council would have been read out loud to the general public. We don't know how the council, townspeople or surrounding Gotlanders felt about all this. Maybe the council and the townspeople of Visby felt relieved that they would get off the hook quite easily, but also ashamed vis-a-vis the people of the rest of Gotland. As part of this occupation, Valdemar places his own bailiffs in charge, confirms Visby's town privileges, and sticks around for a couple of days. Yes, because King Valdemar and the Danes likely remained in Visby after the meeting with the council. The royals and the noblemen certainly felt safer in Visby than camping outside the city walls, since by now the whole island must know of the slaughter of the Gotlanders in the previous battles. The townspeople likely had to keep the Danish invaders housed, fed and clothed, getting nothing in return. It's also likely that the Danes now moved their ships into Visby Harbour, so they have them right next door. Only one somewhat contemporary source from 1415, so 50-odd years later, likely based on an earlier Danish source, mentions any looting from Valdemar's side. It says that King Valdemar brought with him from the island a rich treasure of gold and silver that he had taken from the town and land. 
the merchant houses and guilds of Visby held meetings about how they were going to relate to their new Danish masters. Most important for them at the top of the list was to get going on trade again and keep up production and back to business as normal, really. According to Gunn Westholm's book Visby 1361, The Invasion, in the merchant houses, they quickly rearranged their goods so that some stuff was on the lower floors on display for the Danes, but that lots would be hidden away out of sight for them. This seems like a pretty standard act done by traders during an occupation. In fact, it sounds familiar to something the French did with their wine uh, during World War II, for example. When the Danes did take whatever they wanted, it would probably have been done with the explicit threat of violence. But this didn't last too long, as shortly after the Danes had entered Visby and settled with the council, they readied their ships again and set sail for southern Gotland, sailing along the west coast. Since it was the people of the rest of the island that had lost their men in the battle, we can assume that there was a feeling of loss and sadness and despair across the island. And like pretty much every war ever, we can assume there was sexual violence against the women of Visby and the people of the countryside. That's just one terrible thing that humanity can't ever seem to put behind them. And the countryside definitely seems to have taken the worst of the Danes' ire. Sudret becomes a particular target for the Danes, and we know this from an inscription in Fida Church, which says, The houses are set on fire, a suffering people struck down, year 1361. This, as well as a document from Vardstena Abbey, tells of raids by the Danes in the area after the conquest. There might have been small acts of resistance as the locals tried to stop the Danes looting the area and taking their livelihood, food and goods, but we have no sources or archaeological finds to know for sure. Archaeological finds on Gotland of valuable items like jewellery and silverware dated from the time of the battle do at least indicate that some valuable items must have stayed on the island. If the Danes looted, they could not have taken everything. According to a Swedish annal that was kept until 1425, King Valdemar and his people left Gotland on the 28th of August. The royals and the nobles left with most of the armed force. A few days later, Sweden's King Magnus and Norway's King Håkon Magnus's son, as we know, and the Hansa cities allied with them and declared war on Valdemar and Denmark. Magnus then properly starts doing what Magnus does best, and that's setting about trying to gather or borrow money. <laughs> as we know, armies are expensive, and already on the 15th of August, he's borrowing money from the Archbishop of Uppsala to get some proper cash for a renewed fight against Denmark. The Swedish council then meet and agrees to attack Denmark. They pawn the important castles of Buhus and Weiber to Hansa towns in order to get help from them in the hope of winning Skorna back or at least Gotland. King Magnus was no stranger to borrowing money, was he? It seems to be what he mainly did as king. 999, get cash now. Absolutely. <laughs> Probably the phone number he rang. Valdemar, on the other hand, 
if he was actually interested in keeping Gotland, doesn't have seemed to left many men there, as in late 1361 or early 1362, the people of Gotland rise up and kill the Danish troops that were left there to look after them. And after that, Gotland is back in Swedish hands. The Hansa and Sweden are now ready to strike back at Denmark properly. But whilst Magnus and the Hansa are gearing up for war, the situation inside Swedish politics is turning pretty dire for the king. Now, over the next few years, we are going to see a political situation in Sweden that looks a bit like your washing in the washing machine is going to be spinning around so fast that you might be able to see a bit of colour here and then make out what's going on and which piece of clothing is on top or in the middle. But it won't last long as half a second later everything has changed. Because of this and also because of the recent gap in releases, let's just recap the situation and remind ourselves of who is who right now and who is married to whom and who is engaged to whom and who is fighting whom. That's a great idea. So let's begin with Magnus IV, King of Sweden. He's been king for 42 years now and has recently survived a rebellion by his oldest son, Eric, who died two years before in 1359. He's married to Queen Blanche of Namur. His son, Håkon VI of Norway, was Magnus's youngest son, and he's been king of Norway for the past 18 years when took over from his dad. So they're very much a, a great double team in this uh, part of the story. In the other corner, there's King Valdemar IV, king of Denmark since 1340. And in his sort of ring corner is his son, Prince Christopher, heir to the Danish throne and commander at the Battle of Visby. He's about 20 years old right now. Then Valdemar has a daughter, Margrethe, who's only eight years old at this point. And because in every story about medieval Scandinavian life and politics, there has to be an Ingeboy, so Margrethe's older sister is called Ingeboy. Princess Ingeborg has been engaged to Henry III, Duke of Mecklenburg, for the past 10 years, and the wedding is approaching. Speaking of Mecklenburg, we have, of course, Duke Albert II of Mecklenburg and his son, Albert. Both of these Alberts are also known as Albrecht in their German name and in a lot of other sources, but we're going to call them Albert, as we've been doing so far. Now, Albert II has been duke for almost as long as Magnus has been king of Sweden, and they're almost exactly the same age too. Albert is married to King Magnus's sister, Euphemia, and has been trying to get more and more involved in Swedish and Scandinavian politics over the last couple of years. He's extremely influential in northern Germany, inside Sweden, and throughout the Hanseatic League. Outside of the royal marriages and drama, we also have a relatively new but up-and-coming face in the Swedish Royal Council who we haven't mentioned yet, but is going to burst onto the scene very soon. And his name is Boo Jonsson Grip. Ah, Boo Jonsson Grip. Uh, I think it was historian Dick Harrison who called him the most influential 
non-royal in Swedish medieval history. He was most likely born in the early 1300s, and his name is first spotted in writing in a document dating from 1354. He fought on Magnus's side in the conflict between him and his son Eric in 1358. Almost immediately afterwards, Magnus gave him important positions in the state administration and made him part of the council. And it was from this position of power and influence that he starts to try and affect the course of the country. So, yes, now we've done that bit of a recap of who was doing what as we roll into 1362, we can see what the Swedish nobility get up to. And that's because they've already been quite annoyed having recently lost various battles against Valdemar, and now they get whipped up into a rebellious frenzy, partly by Bull Grieb's political manoeuvrings behind the scene, and partly because of a familiar face or pen. Our old friend Saint Birgitta is busy writing more letters. The more Magnus loses, the more she writes. Birgitta advises any nobleman who will listen to rebel against Magnus. One of these letters is actually preserved at the Royal Library to this day. It starts with a long-winded intro about the Virgin Mary, because of course. Uh, Birgitta says there's another man who will become king, and she accuses Magnus of being gay. So that's classic medieval slander right there. Yeah, and classic Birgitta too. As a result of the disastrous last few years, and some prodding by Birgitta, the Swedish nobility snap and try to dilute Magnus's power, or even remove it completely. In a bizarre twist, uh, the council and the nobility elect Håkon as joint king of Sweden in February 1362. In this election, Finland is allowed to participate via representatives, and that's the first time Finland partake in Swedish royal elections. Magnus has to accept that he must give over some power to his son. Some sources say that Magnus is actually dethroned and or Helkon becomes soul king. According to one chronicle, Magnus is supposedly captured and put in prison by Helkon in late 1361. Harald Gustafsson in The Forgotten Union doesn't believe this is actually a serious imprisonment on Helcon's part. Indeed, he says, Perhaps the most likely explanation is that the Swedish lords wanted a substitute for the deceased Prince Eric as a counterweight to King Magnus, and for a while were prepared to opt for Hawkon in this role. If so, they made a mistake. In contrast to his brother, Hawkon continued to be loyal to his father. It seems not unlikely that the break between son and father in Kalmar was a mere play to the gallery, staged by father and son, in order to persuade the aristocracy that Hawkon was a good alternative. Now, whatever the case, it's only a few months before Magnus is out of captivity and ruling as king again. He's sharing some of the power with Hawkon, either on paper or as a true partnership, because from now on, father and son are entirely loyal to each other. The duo will take some quite decisive actions going forward, and they start by exiling Bull Jonsson Greep and his main noble supporters. Magnus and Hawkon now seem to be pretty secure in their relative kingdoms, and they're really starting to work more and more together, even more so than they have done up till now. 
And it is now with this newly affirmed father and son relationship that is, of course, also an alliance between Sweden and Norway that the Hanseatic League finally launches a counterattack against Denmark. Here's a long but important quote about their preparations for war from The Golden Age of the Hanseatic League by Jürgen Sarnowski. Already in the beginning of August 1361, representatives of the Hansa town councils gathered in Griefswald and preliminarily decided to suspend all relations with Denmark and Skåne. Anyone wanting to sail through the Öresund Strait had to be careful not to trade with its merchants, otherwise he would be severely punished. The final decision was postponed to an assembly some weeks later, when negotiations with Norway and Sweden had begun and more envoys of towns had arrived. The records are dated to 7th of December 1361. Any trade with Denmark and Skåne was forbidden and an alliance was concluded with King Magnus of Sweden and Håkon of Norway. For the first time, it was decided to exact a special custom, the Pfundsol, to finance the war. Yeah, wow, they're going all out on this. So Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a trade embargo, plus its own special tax levy to help fund the future war. And that's going to be a lot of money, as 11 towns are mentioned as backing the decision, including Lübeck, Hamburg, Rostock and Danzig. These towns raise a fleet of 50 ships, with five of them being paid for by Sweden. So the Hansa are taking on the bulk of this work here. This fleet sets sail under the command of Johan Wittenborg, the mayor of Lübeck, battle mayor as he is, and this happens in April 1362. It first turned to the fortresses at Öresund to secure free passage from the Baltic to the North Sea for the Hansa. When help from Sweden failed to materialise, though, apart from those five ships that Magnus has paid for, Wittenborg decided to employ the men from the ships in a siege of Helsingborg. So he's told his sailors to get off the boat and go for a normal, regular siege. At this point, Valdemar uses his own fleet in a surprise attack on the skeleton crews of the Hanseatic fleet. He was able to destroy or capture most of the Hanseatic ships because... A lot of their sailors were busy standing around on land outside the town. The Hanseatic cities lost 12 of their ships and several of their nobles were captured. However, in bad news for Valdemar, his son Christoffel was struck in the head by a rock, presumably from a sling or some sort of catapult, and was gravely wounded. He survived the battle, but struggled with his mental health afterwards. Yeah, he's lost half of his brain or something, probably. So you can imagine he's uh, not just his mental, but his physical health is going to be very uh, damaged after this battle. Mayor Wittenburg managed to agree a ceasefire and bring the now somewhat smaller fleet back to Lübeck. However, the Hansa officials weren't exactly pleased with his performance, And he soon died, some say by execution. Good job. (laughs) Yeah. It was was a harsher performance review back then. (laughs) We we feel that there are areas that you can improve on. In fact, you can improve on them so much 
And we're going to kill you. You've failed all of your personal goals for this quarter. I'm sorry, but we're now going to cut you into quarters. <laughs> Goodbye. This ends any hope that Magnus and Håkon, along with the Hansa, had of taking the fight to Valdemar, and they quickly come to terms with the fact that the current borders were going to remain the same for quite a while. Yes, and it's with this realisation that they fall into quite quickly a spirit of negotiation. And it's now time for a marriage. Valdemar's daughter Ingeborg is next up, this time marrying Henrik, son of Albert of Mecklenburg, and of course the brother of Albert of Mecklenburg. Yes, it's quite confusing that they have the same name. Albert Senior, who's keen to get his fingers in as many pies as possible, is setting in play a long game, or rather continuing his long game, that he's clearly been playing for quite a while at this point. He's still quietly watching, waiting for his opportunity, and this marriage is just one piece of his puzzle. But before he can do anything, a second wedding in as many years involving Valdemar's daughters take place. Valdemar's a busy man... Arranging weddings. Arranging weddings and fighting wars. In April 1363, the three kings of Sweden, Norway and Denmark meet in Copenhagen. King Håkon then marries Valdemar's daughter Margrethe, who is now 10 years old. So prime marriage age. All is well and the war is over, although the Hanseatic League are still a bit annoyed at Valdemar, uh, despite having signed the ceasefire. Sadly for Valdemar, just two months after this alliance and just after all this wedding bonanza for his two daughters, his only son, Prince Christopher, dies. Some say this was as a result of his wounds at the Battle of Helsingborg, and some sources say it's because of an illness. But either way, the heir to the throne of Denmark is no more. Now, this is a big blow and obviously a very sad moment for Valdemar, who not only has lost his son, but must now be fearing some sort of awkward succession when he passes away himself. He spent decades rebuilding Denmark, but now only has two daughters left alive, both are very young, and one of whom is now married to the King of Norway, which naturally puts Håkon's and Margareta's future children in a position to claim the Danish throne in the event of his death, should they have any. This marriage alliance between the two also further annoys the Swedish nobility, who have been rebelling for a while now, at least in thought, and they're angry that Magnus's son and heir is now allied with the Danes, who of course are the arch enemy of Sweden at this time and recent conquerors of Gotland. So this is just one example that we're saying of this washing machine going around and around. They fought a year before, now they're best buddies, they've forgotten the whole Gotland thing, they're married to each other, it's all just it's really crazy. So you can imagine some of these Swedish nobles getting a bit annoyed and saying, whoa, 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 they just like massacred all these Gotlandic peasants and sacked Visby and stole all the stuff and we've been fighting them for ages and now you're buddies with them again? What's, what's going on? Yeah, and the nobility obviously have their own interest at heart as well, perhaps fearing that this alliance with Denmark would make the royals too strong. And it is later in this year, 1363, that Albert of Mecklenburg finally fully commits to a plan that he has presumably been thinking about for a while. 
Seeing which way the wind blows, he enters into direct negotiations with the mutinous Swedish noble rebels who have made their way to Mecklenburg after being exiled from Sweden. The two groups sit down together and make a deal. And the deal is... Albert will get rid of Magnus and make sure Håkon stays put in Norway. But in return, he wants his son and namesake, Albert, to be elected king of Sweden. Björnson Grip and the other nobles mull this over. They are truly fed up of Magnus by now and, of course, want to be able to return to the country. They also respect Albert for his political power and scheming. In the end, their hatred of Magnus leads them to only one possible outcome. Say yes to the deal with Mecklenburg. And they're probably also doing this because they realise that Albert himself, the younger Albert, is quite young. So they're probably hoping that, yeah, after a while we can just sink our claws into him and start trying to take control ourselves. So Albert, the younger one, prepares to take over his uncle's position as king of Sweden, helped by his father. They know what the end goal is, but how are they actually going to get him to Sweden and get him on the throne? And on that note, it's probably a good time to say goodbye for this episode. It's been good to get back in the saddle, but uh, the next episode is really we need to concentrate on this scheming. So we don't want to just start it now for a little bit and leave you hanging. So let's uh, have a nice cliffhanger ending right here, and then we'll get back to scheming Mecklenburg-Alberts next time. And before we go, it's time to say hello to fellow podcaster and a listener of Flatpak History of Sweden, Roberto. And he's got a few words for us. So let's listen to Roberto. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sakartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacardvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacardvelo, Georgia. You can find us on our website, historyofsacardvelo.com, or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sacardvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. 
Thank you, Roberto, for that great promo. And can I say, what a fun podcast. We've binged the first 10 or so episodes in the last few days and are really enjoying it. Do go give it a listen. Absolutely. And now, quickly, it's time for two reviews from Audible, which we uh, didn't realise was a thing, but here they are. So uh, let's read out one each, shall we? And so all the way back in January, Paul Thompson wrote, educational, informative, but also fun to listen to. And it says, great way to get an introduction to Swedish history. As an Australian living in Sweden, I found this a really good way to learn about the country I'm living in, and it's inspired me to read more and visit some of the places mentioned. Really fun to listen to as well, very conversational and great humour. Looking forward to new episodes. Oh, thank you so much. And so glad to hear that you've gone out and visited some of the places that we've mentioned i mean if you're able to do that if you are in sweden then uh, that's a really fun thing to do the second review on audible has the headline light and entertaining it's quite light and entertaining not terribly in depth or analytical but i still think it's a good introduction i like the presentation it's quite laid back and there is a real sense of warmth to the presentation Very impressed by the breadth of material covered and the amount of effort which has gone into it. And that's by reviewer Amazon Customer, <laughs> which is a great name. Like yeah. it was, if, it was almost as if their parents knew uh, what they should be called to give reviews on uh, Audible in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. That review is actually from all the way back in December of last year. Uh, but like Chris said, We didn't realize that you could leave reviews on Audible until quite recently. So forgive us for the delay in reading that out. Exactly. Thank you for taking the time. That's very kind of both of you. Um, if anyone else has got in touch recently and we promised to give you a shout out over the summer months and we've forgotten, uh, do give us a nudge. Our brains have been quite full recently. And do give us some reviews, uh, both on Audible, on Apple Podcasts, and you can even rate us now on Spotify. We're, we've got 4.9 stars out of 5 after 35 ratings there, so that's really great. So thank you for everyone who's taken the time to do that. Yeah, thank you. And one final person has sent us an email, one with a great suggestion, and that is Mark. Mark has been listening since the very beginning and so has quite a good perspective on how long it has taken to get to this point. He's asked if we could do a recap episode summarizing everything we've covered so far. And you know what, Mark? That sounds like a great idea. So no spoilers, but in two or three episodes time, we are going to reach a nice natural break So we feel like that could be a good spot for a recap episode. It might be difficult to recap 60 or so episodes in one, so we'll have to think about exactly how we will do that recap. But we definitely like the idea, so stay tuned to see what happens on that front. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Mark. And uh, also thank you for the interaction on Twitter. You're definitely a familiar name on there too. So thank you for all the chat and engagement you have there. And if anyone else wants to get in touch, send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or by searching our name on Twitter and Facebook and sending us a message there. 
Indeed, tune in next time to see what Albert of Mecklenburg and the rebellious Swedish nobles with uh, Björn son Grip at the helm get up to. It's going to be dramatic. Yes, we'll see you then. Goodbye. Hey, då. Brief interlude while Chris fetches his favourite glass. Brief interlude while Chris fills his favourite glass with water. Brief interlude while Chris sits down. Brief interlude while Chris drinks from his favourite glass of water. This is the benefits of uh, recording in the kitchen of all places. Uh, We still haven't found a permanent space to record yet in the new flat. (laughs) 